We come again to the book of Hebrews and to this passage of Scripture that is before us, and it's really a, a series of studies on the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And the focus now shifts from the prologue and to the supremacy of Jesus more specifically and very specific aspects of his preeminence. We begin with Jesus, who is better than the angels. And that really is going to be the focus. If you would, angelology is what takes up the next two chapters of the book of, Rome, of, the book of Hebrews. If you would, chapter 1 is showing us Jesus higher than the angels, preeminent, supreme, more excellent than they. Chapter 2, Jesus lower than the angels, magnifying his humility, showing us his humble state and getting in tune with his humanity. That's really the author's point there. But if there's a title that I would affix to the whole epistle of Hebrews, it would be the redemptive supremacy of Jesus Christ. That's what my commentary would say on the book of Hebrews. The redemptive supremacy of Jesus Christ. Not only because Hebrews is about the supremacy of Jesus, but also because we need to understand how important redemptive history is in the book of Hebrews. Before we begin to look at passages dealing with the, the sonship of Christ, the deity of Christ, the messianic identity of Christ as sort of an argument or apologetic or a proof text against heresies like adoptionism or Arianism or modalism or anything, any Christological heresy that would undermine the true teaching of Scripture of who is Jesus, we first have to ask the question of what redemptive significance does this have to do in God's plan, his unfolding plan of redemption as he is unveiling the supremacy of his son. It is really the climax of redemptive history that we're looking at here, and that is what Hebrews is all about. It's about taking all the past ages, the past epochs of time, all of the redemptive historical developments that have transpired over all of human history and more importantly, in the history of his people and showing how that everything has come to a head in Christ. That is the point of the book of Hebrews. So we look at passages like those that are cited here that introduce this text to us. These passages out of the Old Testament, Psalm 2, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14. And we understand that those are not just meant as apologetic proof texts, but they are meant to show us this is the long-expected Jesus. And he is expected, as we will see. So I want to focus on two things here. And focusing in on these passages that are cited from the Old Testament, they are all Davidic. They all have to do with David, his kingship, his, his role, and his, his throne. And so I want to capitalize on David and say first that what we're looking at is the Davidic son. And secondly, we'll look at the divine son. The Davidic son is important because the author of Hebrews here is saying, look, Jesus has been exalted higher than the angels. He has a better name. And that meant something like title, status. 
He has been exalted to a higher place. And the idea there in, uh, in verse 6 of the firstborn, that Greek word prototokos, simply meaning the first in rank, the preeminent one, the one that has the first place before everybody else. Not so much chronologically, but in terms of his position. He is that, he is preeminent, and you see that by the fact that he has a more excellent name than the angels. Why? Because as we learned back in verse 3, he has taken his place at the right hand of the majesty on high. It's another Davidic passage, Psalm 110. Oh, I love the book of Hebrews and its ability to tie the whole book of God together for us. It brings uniquely, it uniquely brings together all of the revelation of God. Old covenant, new covenant, Old Testament, New Testament, prophecy and fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So the author uses angelology next to Christology to show us the supremacy of the Son, of the Son. And this begins by stressing the Davidic connection. And because there is a Davidic connection, there's a connection to David's kingdom, there's a connection to David's promises, and there's a connection to the covenant that God made with David. That covenant can be seen if you turn with me to uh, Psalm 89, for example. Psalm 89, I could read it to you because it is a very important and it is a very explicit text. It says, I have made my covenant with my chosen. This is the prototypical elect one. We talk about being elect. You and I are elect. If we are in Christ, God has elect and chosen people. But there is a prototypical elect one, a chosen one, namely Jesus I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. That is the Davidic covenant. What is the Davidic covenant? A perpetual king on the throne and an unending rule, a reign, a dominion exercised by the sons of David and ultimately by the son of David, the messianic son of David himself. So we're moving away now from the introduction, the prologue, and we're getting into the main argument of the letter with Jesus being better than the angels. I have good news for you. Um, Understanding the book of Hebrews has been deemed to be one of the most difficult of the books of the Bible to really to interpret. Uh, You do any commentary on the book of Hebrews, they say that at the very outset. Hebrews is one of the most difficult books of the Bible. And no doubt it is. There are many exegetical challenges. I've already pointed out that the original Greek of Hebrews is very difficult. Many hapax legomenas. That means those are terms that are only used one time in the entire Bible, and many of them are found right here in the book of Hebrews. Very eloquent Greek in the book of Hebrews is one of the reasons why some people would theorize that maybe Apollos, who was known for his uh, eloquence, perhaps he was the author of this untitled unnamed letter, but I want to make it simple, not difficult. And that is the, that is the, the, the struggle, isn't it? That is, that's the hard thing is making something difficult and making it simple. I mean, that's really the challenge. But I want to focus in on the word better. 
And I would say you can understand the whole argument of the book of Hebrews if you just remember the word better, kraton. The word appears 12 times throughout the book, and oftentimes it's in conjunction to Jesus Christ, and sometimes it's in connection with believers. Why is this important? Because the word better gives us access to the theology of the whole book. For example, we are told here that Jesus has a more excellent name. He, has, he is better than angels by virtue of having a more excellent name than they. And that's why this is so important in the book of Hebrews. Jesus provides a better, a, a better hope as a better high priest, chapter 7, verse 19. He is the guarantee of a better covenant, chapter 7, verse 22. He is the mediator of a better covenant, chapter 8, verse 6. He provides a better sacrifice than all of the, the, the sacrificial system of the old covenant, chapter 9, verse 23. Because his blood speaks of better things than the blood of Abel. Chapter 12, verse 24. The blood of Abel called for vengeance and judgment and wrath. The blood of Jesus calls for justice and peace, mercy and justification. Consequently then, the word better is also used in relationship to believers under the new covenant that we are in a better place. Uh, for example... Because of the better nature of Christ's work, the author has better things to say concerning his audience, things that actually speak about salvation. Because of Christ, we have a better, lasting, enduring possession that cannot be taken away through persecution, chapter 10, verse 34. And we have better examples of faith. You know chapter 11 in the hall of faith. Well, we have better examples of faith, like Abel, who had a better offering than Cain, like the patriarchs who were looking for a better country than the one that they had here on earth. They were looking for a heavenly one, chapter 11, verse 16, and will obtain, listen to this, to a better resurrection. Everything is better. Look at, uh, turn with me to Hebrews 11. This kind of sums up the whole matter here. Everything that the old covenant people had, we have better in its place. We have a, a better realization, a fuller understanding, a fuller revelation for us, beginning in verse 39. Hebrews eleven thirty nine 39 says, all of these, all of these amazing examples of faith, all of these people, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. In other words, God was waiting to reveal the best at the end. He brought the best at the very end when he revealed his son, Jesus. So what Hebrews is about is about the better character of the new covenant because of the better ministry of Jesus Christ. Hebrews is, is saying exactly what the gospel of Luke is saying, that we are living in a time of fulfillment. Luke chapter 1, verse 1. Jesus himself in Mark chapter 1, verse 15 says, the time is fulfilled. The, all of the ages have gone ripe with prophecy, and now it is time for fulfillment. The life of Christ marked the period of promise 
fulfillment. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. All of God's promises are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. That does not mean the little tiny promises in your, in your Bible promise book that he promises to provide for you and put food on your table. Oh, those are there. God is providing for, but these promises are monumental. They are redemptive promises. They are promises of the ages. They are promises of salvation, redemption, of a newly constituted people. These are massive redemptive promises that are fulfilled in Christ. And that's precisely what's happening here. This is why it opens up with these two Old Testament citations. Uh, All of these things have reached their Christological end, their Christological goal. All of it has been finally revealed and fulfilled in Christ. So just as the angels speak of of revelation, of redemption, if you look back to the Old Covenant, that's the role that angels played. Angels were there administering revelation. Exodus 3.2, the angel of the Lord is there speaking with Moses in the burning bush. Acts chapter 7, Stephen talks about that very fact. Isaiah 63 verse 9 speaks of angels and their accompaniment of God's redemption. Galatians chapter 3 verse 19 talk about the fact that angels were there as mediators of the law. Jesus comes in as a better mediator, a better revealer, a more preeminent one because and by virtue of his preeminence. He is preeminent as the Son of God. He is preeminent because he supremely displays God's revelation and supremely accomplishes God's redemption. Now, the first quote that's used here, the first two quotes that are used here, verse 5, really begin with a question. Look at what it says again here. It says, for to which of the angels did he ever say? And, of course, the answer to that is to absolutely none of them. (laughs) Because these, this is a quote from Psalm 2, verse 7 and 2 Samuel 7, 14. Let me read those two verses to you side by side. Psalm 2, verse 7 says, I surely would tell you the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And again, in the same thread of sonship, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, it says here, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. Now notice the perspicuity and the precision of Scripture. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5 does not say, as 2 Samuel 7 says, when he commits iniquity. See, the, song, the, the, the author knows that that does not apply to Christ. How it applies to Christ is in a better than way. He is better than David, better than Solomon. As Jesus himself said, somebody greater than Solomon is here. One who does not commit iniquity, but who is, in a much greater way, the Son, nevertheless. And so, verse 5 begins with an enthronement psalm, Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is so magnificent. Would you turn there with me? Because it's important to understand the context. It's important to understand the context. Much has been made out of the word today. 
Today I have begotten you. And so people ask the question, what does today refer to? Is that a reference to the incarnation? Is that a reference to the baptism where God says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased? Is that a reference to the resurrection? Romans chapter 1 verse 4, he was declared to be the son of God, empowered by the spirit of holiness. What is that referring to? I think, my dear friends, what it's referring to is the exalted session of Christ. Christ and his exaltation. Once he has ascended to his throne as the Davidic son of God, the son man, the God-man, Jesus. Because in Psalm 2, verses 1 through 6, and those are really crucial portions of Scripture there. Psalm 1 through 6, we understand what is being presented here is the exaltation of Jesus Christ. He is the one whom God installs upon his holy mountain, on his throne. He says in verse 6, as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion. Now, Zion is a a typological word, phrase, idea that speaks about heaven, the kingdom of God. And the Son has been installed in heaven as the King of Kings. Now, this all began when Samuel found David, just a young shepherd boy in the field, tending to his sheep. You remember the story, 1 Samuel chapter 16. You remember what happened there. But it was an indicator, not only that God was bringing an earthly king, but with the earthly king came a messianic king, a messianic king who would rule and reign and overthrow all principalities, all powers, all enemies that would ever be. This psalm is also believed to be part of the coronation process of all the successive kings that would come after David. They would read Psalm 2 as part of their coronation. And there they are, the the children of Israel, coronating a new king and singing about Jesus Christ. This is what I said, the volume of the book, as Hebrews itself will go on to say, is written of him. I tell you the truth, folks, Jesus on every page As David Murray has so aptly put it, everything has to do with Jesus. I was reading the prophets uh, two nights ago. I was reading through the prophets, and I I couldn't get out of Ezekiel because I couldn't stop learning about Jesus Christ out of Ezekiel. And I'm thinking, how many people go to Ezekiel for Jesus? But he is there. He is everywhere. He is everywhere that's what our Emmaus conference is all about, and I'm excited about this year's conference. Lord willing, if um, uh, Phil Johnson doesn't cancel on us, um, we will have Phil Johnson here to help me to preach Christ in Exodus. Boy, I'm looking forward to that. When I told him that was the theme, he was so excited. He was like, that's a fantastic theme. I said, yeah, I know. So, that's why I picked it. You know? As for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Heaven is often described as God's mountain. Paradise, the paradise of God. The use of the psalm is enclosed with the concept of enthronement. 
exaltation. Think about it. Going back to Hebrews chapter 1, I mean, we're bouncing back and forth, but Hebrews chapter 1 encloses this statement of today I begotten you, encloses these words on sonship with exaltation. He is at the right hand of God. He is at the right hand of the majesty on on high. That's on the one hand, verse 3. And then verse 6 and verse 8, let all the angels of God worship him. Verse 8, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. This is Jesus on his throne, exalted. Exalted. And it's the outward declaration of the Son of God, the incarnate Son, where heaven, for the first time in eternal history, if you can even fathom that, saw a man sit on the throne of God. And therefore he says, let all the angels of God worship him. Because he is no longer in the in the state in which he has been as uh, the divine word. This is the hypostatic union of Christ. This is the dual nature of Christ coming together in heaven, enthroned, reigning as an incarnate king, sitting and presiding over all of God's kingdom. Just amazing. Amazing. So more important than just trying to zero in a specific day, though, I want to zero in this Davidic connection because not only is David... Uh, uh, Jesus as the son of David announced, but he is then anticipated for the rest of the Old Testament after that point. Now, obviously, he was anticipated since the opening of Genesis 3.15 as the seed of the woman. But this is seed theology continued from a different angle. Not just the seed of the woman now, but he's also now the seed of the king. The seed of the king. But it all begins with the covenant that's made with David, as I said here. So turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 16, because there is the most primitive discovery of the king, of King David. And because with this young shepherd boy comes this amazing promise of a greater king shepherd. I love these descriptions of Jesus that are sent here, but it begins with God commissioning Samuel 1 Samuel 16, verse 1, Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul? So I've rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have selected a king for myself among his sons. And so God is the one who has chosen, made his selection. God prepares Samuel to anoint God's chosen one by reminding him that he can only anoint the one that God distinguishes, the one that God marks out as king. Verse 3, I will show you what you shall do, and you shall anoint for me the one whom I designate to you. In other words, no more man-centered criteria for the king. God is not looking any longer for that which is outward, saw, tall, handsome, good-looking, obviously a leader. Anyone would respect him. And now God makes his choice. God makes his choice. After bringing out all, the, all of Jesse's sons, Samuel says in verse 11, are these all the children? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, and behold, he is tending the sheep Picture that, folks. Picture that. Picture it. Picture David there on the countryside. I've been to Bethlehem. It's beautiful. 
I can see them there among the white stones, the white rocks that, 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 that are scattered all over the countryside of Bethlehem. Picture it out here like a shepherd. And when, a couple times I've been to Bethlehem, there were shepherds out there. And there is little David, there's young David out there with his sheep, very unassuming, <laughs> just tending to his sheep. And God was getting ready to fill that young boy with such typological prophetic significance beyond his wildest dreams. And he says, he says, then Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. Amazing, right? Samuel says, I'm not ready to take a casual posture, a relaxed posture, because my king is about to walk in here. So I'm going to remain standing until my king comes. Because this is the one that God is going to identify and anoint as king. And when he does that, he is going to be my king. Isn't that amazing? He won't sit down. He's standing in honor of his king. Look at verse 12 and 13. David described as son, shepherd, and king. Remind you of anybody? So he sent and brought him in. Now he was Rudy. <laughs> that wasn't his nickname or anything. It was Rudy just means he was of a reddish color, okay? Red, kind of a red tone, I don't know, uh, with red pigmentation. He says, with beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward, and Samuel arose and went to Ramah. So there, from that point on, the Davidic throne was established, and the Davidic promise of a greater king came with it. The promise of a greater Davidic king came with him. That is what Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel 7 are referring to. Scripture is written so Christologically that the life of David is not simply meant as an example of the past victories and failures of Israel, but to what those triumphs and those transgressions were pointing to, to a greater Davidic king who would never fail, always win, never give in to temptation, never sin, but would rule perfectly with perfect justice and perfect equity. He would keep God's people safe, secure from their true enemies, and sit in the throne room of God and rule. Second Samuel 7.14, we are given the perpetual nature of this promise in Second Samuel 2.14. So if you go back there, this is what he says. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. And this is spoken in, uh, of Solomon who would come and to perpetuate that throne. It was a sign that the throne would not stop being populated until the final messianic son would arrive. Now, so that is, that is uh, something of uh, David's messianic son being announced, but also he is anticipated greatly. Turn with me to Hosea chapter 3. What you find in the rest of the prophets is a reference back then to David, to Jesse even, to Jesse even, as all of the prophets were awaiting the one they knew from the beginning was being spoken of in David's line, David's seed, David's son. I mean, the very word 
David now carries theological importance. The very name David now is typological of Jesus Christ. Amazing! Hosea chapter 3, after he details the apostasy of Israel. Now remember, Hosea is written oh, sometime in 7th century B.C. I mean, this is written hundreds of years after David died and was gone and off the scene and no longer. And yet we are given this incredible Davidic promise. The sons of Israel will remain for many days without king or prince, without sacrifice, sacred pillar, without ephod or household idols. Afterward, the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. How is it that Hosea is yet speaking of people coming to David the king? And they will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. But we know that the last days were inaugurated in the ministry of Jesus. The outpouring of his spirit, that was the inauguration of what is known as the last days. And so we are streaming to David our king. David our king. And the prophets speak of all the nations coming to David their king. Look to Jeremiah 33, please. Jeremiah 33, because Jeremiah describes Jesus not only as the Davidic king, but also as priest. This becomes very important in the book of Hebrews. Jeremiah 33, beginning in verse 14. We know this is right after the announcement that there is coming a new covenant in the last days. God is going to make a new covenant with his people. This is telling us how it's going to happen. Through Jesus. It's very simple, but it's very beautiful. It's elaborate. It's magnificent. It's wonderful in our eyes. Verse 14, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I, when I will fill the good word, which, when I will fulfill the good words which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and in, the, and in that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth and he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will be, dwell in safety. And this is the name by which she will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. In other words, it is through justification in Jesus Christ that his people will dwell securely. For thus says the Lord. For thus says the Lord. This is like an argument. David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. What is the assurance that God's people will dwell safely? The promise made to David. But watch this, verse 18. And the Levitical priest shall never lack a man before me to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to prepare sacrifices continually. So the sacrificial system will be rehauled. It will be excelled. It will be furthered. It would be advanced. And that's exactly what Hebrews is talking about. Ultimately, the sacrifices that we're concerned with now is not literal temple sacrifice. It is spiritual, verbal praise. That is the sacrifice of lips. 
Verse 19, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant for the day and my covenant for the night, so that day and night will not be at their appointed time, then my covenant may be also be broken with David, my servant, so that he will not have a son to reign on his throne and with the Levitical priests, my ministers. In other words, you would sooner put an end to day and night before you put an end to the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Amazing. As the host of heaven cannot be counted and the sand of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the descendants of David, my servant, and the Levites who minister to me. God is creating a kingdom of priests. Beautiful. And you know the word multiplication. Sands of the sea. The number of the stars. That goes back to Abraham. You see, it's all together. All of the covenants converge on Jesus Christ. All of the glorious promises made to Abraham, all of the glorious promises made to David, all of the glorious promises contained in the law, all of them find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. So what is, what is Jeremiah saying and what is God doing more importantly? He is unifying king and priest office. Turn with me to Zechariah chapter 6. Zechariah chapter 6. So after this post-exilic days, after the captivity, after the exile, many thought that maybe they were witnessing the fulfillment of such prophecies in Zerubbabel. Because it was a time of prosperity, because things were being rebuilt, because things were on the up and up. But guess what? It didn't take long before the people began to realize they needed to look past the present-day politics to a future prophetic fulfillment yet to come. Zechariah 6.11, take silver and gold, make an ornate crown and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of uh, Jehozadak, the high priest. Then say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, a man whose name is Branch. For he will branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus, he will be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will be between the two offices. So these two Massive old covenant offenses are now going to converge in one man, which had never been officially done ever, except through Jesus, who is, according to the book of Hebrews, king, priest, and as we've already seen, prophet, which he will also make even more abundantly clear. I will be a father to him. He shall be a son to me. That does not speak of anything having to do with the pre-existent Christ becoming the Son of God because he was never the Son of God. No, 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 folks, we're misinterpreting that. It is all and purely, it is all Davidic. And the Jews understood that. They weren't thinking Jesus will become the Son of God ontologically, but that he will be identified, he will be revealed. This one that we have been looking for the one that we've been expecting, he will be revealed. 
Now, we have to move to the next psalm, or the next Old Testament quote that's cited here. Look at verse 6 in the passage again, Hebrews 1.6. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let the angels of God worship him. Now, that language there, he brings the firstborn into the world. Very, very interesting wording. These are not throwaway sentences here. Each of these are filled with important meaning. Bringing the firstborn, that is, many scholars have pointed out, that is very parallel to God bringing his firstborn son, Israel, out of Egypt. So it is what God is about to do and what he is about to announce. And so he fulfills what Israel was intended to be. He brings his real firstborn, his ultimate firstborn, his truly preeminent son into the world. And he does not use the word cosmos either. He uses oikomen, which speaks of, a, of something different. It's probably, as many have pointed out, is probably referring to Jesus being introduced not to an earthly realm, but to a heavenly realm. Again, referring us back to the concept of exaltation. Because if you look at Psalm 97, where this quote here, where he says, let all the angels of God worship him, it's probably referring back to Psalm 97, verse 7. And the Septuagint, it would have been Psalm 96. But Psalm 97, verse 7 says, let all those be ashamed who serve graven images, who boast themselves of idols. Worship him, all you gods. And so that demands interpretation. The word gods there is the word Elohims. Uh, some of your Bibles may say something in the column about spiritual beings or supernatural beings. Well, we are helped in terms of the interpretation. We are helped by the Septuagint. In the Septuagint, they translate Elohim as angelos to make it a bit clearer that what he's saying is that all angelic hosts are being called to worship him. And so it's just an interesting application because no doubt the people heard this is a, this is a, um, you know, this is a rebuttal to paganism, but it is also a call for angelic worship. Look at uh, verse 8, Nam, uh, Psalm 97, verse 8. It says there, Zion, because it's important, it's in the context of exaltation. Zion heard this and was glad, and the daughters of Judah have rejoiced because of your judgments, O Lord. For you are the Lord most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. Far above all gods. So the Septuagint using angelos in place of Elohim seems to suggest that this is a commentary on what was meant by this passage originally, and the Jewish people understood this. They also understood this based on apocryphal writings. Um, there are writings in the Song of Solomon, in odes. Uh, those, those are not inspired books, but scholars can't ignore what they say because in the apocryphal book of odes, it actually says, worship him, all you angels. And that was commenting back on a different passage in Deuteronomy. Either way, the Psalms, the law, the old covenant was calling for the Son of God, the Davidic Son, to be worshipped. 
as not just the Davidic son, but as the divine son, as the divine son. This shouldn't surprise us. If you go back to Psalm 2, Psalm 2, verse 12, right there we are told that all should worship the son. Do homage to the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, so that final judgment is predicated upon whether or not you worship the son. The angels worship the sun. Do you worship the sun? You say, well, I worship the sun, but I worship others along with the sun as well. That won't do you any good because remember what the psalm says. All the idols, all the idolatry is worthless. All of the idols, they're graven images. They boast in idolatry. It's a false boast. It's a sinful boast. It's idolatry. No, no, Jesus demands exclusive worship. But where does this take place? Turn with me to Revelation chapter 5. There we see kind of a glimpse at this actually happening. Angels worshiping Jesus. Revelation chapter 5, verse 11. This is what Satan failed to do. Satan did not worship Jesus, you remember the temptation? Jesus had to remind him, worship the Lord your God only, and Satan refused to do that, especially to pay homage to the Son. But the elect angels do worship the Son. Beginning in verse 11, then I looked and I heard a voice of many angels around the throne and living creatures and elders, and the number of them were myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom, might, honor, glory, and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. They just kept saying, Amen, Amen, Amen. And the elders fell down and worship. This is praise. This is worship. It can't be exhausted. There's no excess. There's no amount of amens you could say. There is no limit to this. It's boundless boundless worship of the Son. You want to know what you're going to be doing in heaven? You're going to be ever increasing in your ability to worship the Son. We're limited now. Our sin limits our worship. Ezekiel said, oh God, forgive me for the iniquity of my holy things. But not in heaven. It will be boundless. It will be limitless. And we will not have the shackles of this sinful nature holding us back. We can worship it. Pure heart, pure hands, pure deeds, pure motives, pure worship. And it will be endless. What is the nature of angel worship of Jesus? Absolutely redemptive. I will remind you that they are worshiping, worshiping the Lamb. Ta-ar-ni-on, the lamb. Who, why is he the lamb? He is the lamb because he needs to be slain. 
So every time Jesus is called the Lamb, it's not just because of his meekness. It's because of his blood. I think it was John Piper who said, in heaven we will be singing about the most, just the most unspeakable things. The Lamb of God who was slain, slaughtered for his people. It says riches, power. It is the worship of the Lamb who's also the lion of the tribe of Judah who has been vindicated for all to see. He who became weak is worthy of power. Follow along in Revelation. He who, is, who, has became, who became poor for our sakes, as Paul tells us, 2 Corinthians 8, 9, he is worthy of riches, plunder, which is exactly what his father promised him in Isaiah 53, verse 12. You will divide the booty among the strong, the spoil, the riches, the victory. You will divide it up among your people. He who became poor is worthy of riches. He who was despised and deemed foolish is worthy to be ascribed with wisdom. He who laid down his life and was silent like a lamb before its shears is worthy of all might. Who when was wrong did not return evil for evil. He who was mocked and ridiculed by the rulers of this age, guess what? He is worthy of all honor. He who laid aside his pre-incarnate glory is worthy of all celestial, eternal glory. This is the Lamb. This is the Son being exalted by the angels. And this is why the author of Hebrews can say, He is better. There's no, there's no greater proof of that than to show that the angels have been put in a posture of eternal worship of the Son. There's no better way of saying that. What does that mean for you and me in the 21st century in your car, in traffic. <laughs> so what, right? All of these things I'm saying. So what is this? As our king, he gives us what David never could. He gives you shalom, safety, and stability. I had to use the Hebrew because I wanted to keep the alliteration right. Shalom, peace, he, he gives us peace, he gives us safety, he gives us stability in our lives. And, and we'll see in, in, in Hebrews chapter 4, he gives us what Joshua couldn't give us, rest for our souls. He gives us a land, he gives us a country, he gives us an inheritance. Oh, but if you're thinking only physical, earthly, visible, that's why Paul says, we do not look upon the things that are visible, but invisible, eternal in the heavens. We have to have eyes to see. We don't have eyes to see. We miss the glory of everything here. Let me just read you how this works out. As the Davidic firstborn son of God and king. That's the title I wrote down here for Jesus. John chapter 14, verse 27 says, Peace I leave with you. You know, David could never look at the people and say, 
peace I leave with you. No, 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 no. Not with the Philistines and the southern border. No, no, none of the other kings. Uzziah, it doesn't matter who, Hezekiah, none of them could offer absolute guarantee of peace. But Jesus says, peace I leave with you. And it's a very particular type of peace. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Do not let your heart be anxious, troubled. Have you ever been in traffic? Anxious? Running through your mind all the things that make you anxious? Remember, do not let your heart be anxious. Do not be fearful. Fearful of what you're expecting to find when you get to work. Some of you are there. You're anxious. You're fearful. What's going to happen? This is my last day? Am I going to have another run-in with that, that person, that employee? At school, kids, anxious. Am I going to get bullied again today? Peace I give to you, not as the world gives. It is a spiritual, deep peace. Also, safety, safety. There's coming a time, and is already here, that we are entering a world where parents, brothers, relatives, friends will betray one another to death. That's happening all over the Middle East. America, we are so oblivious to this. In the Middle East, this is almost a daily reality. One, I'll never forget this. I'm preaching South Lake down the street here. I was approached by two Middle Eastern men. One was from uh, Egypt, and the other guy, I think, was from Indonesia. Both of them ministering in Islamic context. And he says, I really enjoyed your preaching. It was very good. We preach like this where I'm from. He said, but where I'm from, if somebody converts, is different. He says, just a few weeks ago, a young girl converted, Muslim girl, converted. She was 16 years old. She converted. I baptized her. Baptized her. We sent her home to her parents and said, go tell your family what you've done your decision to follow Jesus. This pastor looked at me and he said, her parents threw her out of a 16-story apartment building for leaving Islam. You will be betrayed by your parents, your brothers, relatives, friends. They will put some of you to death. But here is the safety that David could not give. You'll be hated by all because of my name, yet... Not a hair on your head will perish. You don't have to worry that you will perish utterly. That young girl, her hair will be restored. God will resurrect her right now one day in beautiful life, and her body will be perfect, perfect resurrected body. Not one not one hair on your head will perish. You say, wait a minute, but, but she died. Talk about hair perishing. You got Christians in the Middle East losing their head. Forget the hair. I will remind you, brothers and sisters, that Paul lost his head too. And this verse was for him, to comfort him. 
that he has safety and security in the Son of God. Lastly, he gives us stability. And this is for all of you, whether you are a Christian or not. This is for you. Jesus tells a parable. He says, everyone who hears my words acts on them. He may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house. And yet it did not fall. For it had been founded on the rock. What's the fall? The great fall of verse 26. The fall is judgment. You were not ready. And great everlasting consequences ensue. The rain fell. Tell you a funny story. Hesitant to tell you all this because it's a little embarrassing. My wife and I walking uh, yesterday. Sometimes we go in nice neighborhoods and play pretend. You know, we walk in nice neighborhoods and look around. Not, not, my neighborhood's nice, but I'm talking really nice, you know. And um, it's kind of cloudy. My wife says, you think we should walk? It's kind of cloudy. You know, it is Texas. I said, oh, it looks fine. Don't worry about it. Sprinkle, a couple sprinkles. It's no big deal. It's just going to pass us by. Okay. I kid you not, <laughs> if ever there was, you know, if ever there was a saying that says, if you don't like the weather in Texas, just wait 10 minutes, this was it. Because we went from a couple sprinkles and a little bit of cloud to torrential downpour two blocks away from our car and nowhere to hide. Where are you going to hide? Someone's porch? That's embarrassing. So we got caught in monsoon rains, me with my bad knees. I had to run back to the car because I'm the man. I'm supposed to go get the car and get my wife. She's hiding somewhere. <laughs> and in a matter of seconds, I was drenched. I got in the car soaking wet. You, Mike, if you would have seen me, you would, you would have laughed me to scorn. But anyway. I hate to go from a funny application to a, an application so serious as judgment. But in that same way, dear friends, as the Word of God said, their foot will soon slip. I mean, never in a million years, I thought. In a few minutes, I am going to be covered in rain and running for my life to get dry, to find some refuge. That's how the day of judgment will be. Never in a million years did you thought that it would come so sudden. And next thing you know, it is upon you. And you're standing there before Almighty God to give an answer for your life and for every idle word that you've ever spoken. And just that quickly, what you're going to want is the security, the safety, the surety of Jesus Christ. You're going to want a rock. You're going to want to know, I built my life on the rock. I don't care about what storms are coming into my life, either practically or, 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 or ultimately, you know, whether, whether life or death. Because my life is built on the rock, I know that I will stand. I pray you stand. If you don't know if you're going to stand, nothing is more important than that. 
I met a young man once who came up to me after a worship service and says, I can't go through those doors. I can't go through those doors. Until I know I'm right, I can't go through those doors. I said, that's right, that's, that's right. Let's pray or something. I'm talking about sinner's prayer. I'm saying, pour out your heart to God and repent and maybe he'll forgive you. That's how important it is. That's how serious this all is.